Well, do uh, please keep your Bibles open there at Luke 11. It is good to be here with you this morning. Let's commit uh, the time we have and we continue to hear God's word uh, to him in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is powerful and eternal and life-giving. Write it on our hearts and minds that we may not forget it nor forget you but grow in the depth and breadth of the knowledge of your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Lord's Prayer. How about that? Coming to the Lord's Prayer today in Luke. There wouldn't be a prayer that is more familiar among Christians. Even many who aren't Christians would recognise it if they heard it, at least in the Western world. Uh, For many of us, it's played a profound place in our experience of God. In fact, millions, if not billions of people down through the last 2,000 years, uh, for them it has been sung and recited and remembered. Uh, I even remember my experience as a young tacker uh, at my grandmother's house sleeping overnight and she said, now you're going to say your prayers before you go to bed? And I said, I don't know what to pray. And she said, you pray this. And she prayed the Lord's Prayer. In Australia, we still say it in federal parliament. Uh, Of course, we say it as a church and uh, many of us pray it in our personal prayer times as well. Now today, we come back to where it all began. One of the times we read it taught by Jesus, the other one's in Matthew. And while our eye is naturally drawn uh, to the words of this much-loved prayer, and it should be, uh, what strikes me along with it is how we see the heart of God and the greatest needs of we who pray. So we're going to be comforted and challenged today as we hear these words in our prayer life, in our whole life, but equally in our understanding of ourselves and even more, delight in the one who answers our prayers. And so turn to the start of chapter 11 with me and the the Lord's Prayer is Jesus' answer, as you heard, to his disciples' request. Uh, They ask him, Teach us to pray. Uh, If you're a driver, imagine having Formula One champion Lewis Hamilton teach you to drive. You know who I'm talking about? Brendan's shaking his head. He has no idea. Uh, uh, Do you know who I'm talking about? Excellent. You're alive, hearts are beating, brains are working. This is excellent. If you're a cook... Imagine if Curtis Stone was to teach you to cook. Do you know who I'm talking about? And if you were a footy player, imagine having David Simmons teach you to play footy. (laughs) And even higher than that, here they see Jesus go off and pray and it's dawning on them that he's God's promised king. Wouldn't you want to say with them, teach us to pray? Now, Jesus is only too happy to, and he answers uh, with these words we've heard already. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. 
Now, I take it you can divide this prayer helpfully into three parts. Uh, the privilege of the relationship we have with the one asked. Uh, secondly, asking for his glory. And thirdly, asking for our needs. Uh, and so, uh, what is the relationship Jesus models here in the first place? It's the relationship between us and God where we have the privilege to call him Father. Now, none of the Old Testament prayers address God like that. Uh, that would be way too presumptuous. You've got to have a special relationship to call someone Father. Uh, and so my three sons, Sam, Matt and Josh, uh, they don't call me Roger unless I haven't heard them and they want to get my attention. Uh, they could call me Roger, but they, they have a unique relationship with me. We even had a conversation once where they, they were starting to practice try out the Roger one, uh, where they are the only three people who can call me father, can call me dad, and come with the confidence uh, that that gives you. Uh, and I love it when they do because it reflects that relationship. It's even greater for us when Jesus invites us to call God our Father. Uh, do you remember back in chapter 10 when Jesus' uh, arrival spelt the beginning of a new era? Uh, back in 10, verse 22, he said, No one comes to the Father except the Son, that is Jesus, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The one who answers our prayers, he has opened the door. He has given us special access, privilege, uh, and not the least of which is to pray what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Praise God for that. Now what's also striking here is what we as disciples are meant to ask first. Uh, I don't know about you, but left to myself, I always think of myself first uh, not what God wants, and yet what we pray here in verse 2 is all about God. Not just what he wants, but what he deserves. Uh, and so we read these words, hallowed be your name. Now, just, you know, anyone in the last week used the word hallowed? <laughs> uh, try it out, you know, people will start to distance themselves from you. Uh, it's not a word we use every day, it's just an, an old English word, the word for holy, which is itself shorthand for set apart from the rest. And so uh, we do still hear it sometimes, the word hallowed, we hear it in the word Halloween, uh, which actually comes from All Saints Day Eve, Halloween. Uh, uh, which means All Holy Ones Day, Eve. Uh, or you might have heard the phrase, you know, it usually gets talked about in educational institutions, these hallowed halls. Heard that one? Uh, when people say that, they mean somewhere set apart or where something special takes place. Or in art, uh, uh, or in the, you know, perhaps the stained glass window over in the historic church. Have you ever seen the, uh, the dish over the head of, you know, Renaissance art? What's it called? A halo. Uh, because it's symbolic that the person is holy. So to pray that God's name would be hallowed 
He's asking that he'd be treated in a special way, separate from everyone and everything else. Sadly, that's not the way it is yet. Read through the pages of the Bible and we know people deny and suppress the truth about God, even Israel. Uh, God's own people fail to treat God as he ought to be treated. We read a summary of their story in Ezekiel 36, didn't we? Where even as Israel had been called God's own son, she had turned her back on him again and again. Their actions tarnished God's great name. The other nations watching on, uh, imagine yourself at the SCG watching Australia play cricket. The other nations were like spectators at the SCG and when they saw the miserable performance of those who were on the field, they didn't say they're hopeless. They said their God is hopeless. I'm not trying to draw any parallels to the current state of Australian cricket there. Uh, that same passage in Ezekiel, if you read on, is about the kingdom God will set up. Uh, there's the one in the Old Testament, but he will set up a different kingdom, kingdom 2.0, a kingdom where his people won't drag his good name down and his name will have its rightful place over everyone and everything. So it makes sense to pray to God, your kingdom come, just as it is for his name to be hallowed. The two go together. And as the disciples were standing here with Jesus, were standing with the king of the kingdom, what's his message been again and again over the last few chapters? The kingdom of God is near. Uh, we read that in chapter 10, verse 9, chapter 10, verse 11. In fact, the disciples were sent out on a mission to proclaim the kingdom. And the whole of Luke has set this up at this time as the time of God's coming kingdom. When Jesus first spoke these words, the kingdom was near, but not here. Now for us, as we're on the other side of the cross, the kingdom has come. The war on God's enemies won. But now as we live, we await to see it in all its fullness as we await the kingdom that is to come. The priority of this prayer is clear. It gives us the priority for our prayers. Pray first for God's glory and his role and rule to be treated with the honour it deserves. What comes next in verses 3 and 4? Well, we ask him to meet our needs. But is that such a great shift from the kingdom focus? Have a think about that as we read through. Uh, these words have crucial requests we're asking God to meet, and with them the recognition that he is powerful and willing to meet them. Uh, in the present, the past, and the future. So I'm going to divide it up into those three. The first is the present. Give us each day our daily bread. Now for us, uh, people in this room here together, we have a very different experience around our daily needs from those who walked with Jesus then. Uh, that's not to say they were off in the Stone Age. 
Uh, but we do have fridges and pantries and shops and takeaway and home delivery. Uh, them, not so much. Uh, and so for us, it's easy to be naive about the reality that our Father in heaven supplies our daily needs, that we need him to provide for us every day. It's easy to think that all those things just come off the shelf, not just bread, not even just food, uh, but indeed they're the most obvious. So this prayer reminds us of our needs uh, and who to ask and how we can rely on him to meet those needs. Uh, then there's the request which looks to our past for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Ezekiel 36, we read out earlier, goes on to tell how God will cleanse his people from their sin, that he would forgive their sin. And this had been part and parcel of the promise uh, of the coming kingdom. It, it was crucial uh, to restore the relationship between God and his people uh, and a huge relief for us uh, at that. For if we learn anything about ourselves in God's word, it's that we need his forgiveness. That challenges our pride, doesn't it? It challenges us uh, to see ourselves as we really are. But of course it makes sense to be asking this so we might receive his kindness and grace. And we need to ask because far better to ask and be humbled than to live under the illusion that somehow we can say to God, look at me or look at what I've done. Deluded if we take that path. But there's also another challenge in what Jesus says, because he goes on to say, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now, uh, today, as we spend this time in these 13 verses, we could actually delve much further into each one. We could have a, a, a Bible talk on each line of the Lord's Prayer. We're not going to do that, uh, but just realise we can't go into everything. Uh, we can't, we do know though that we can't possibly take this to mean, you know, we somehow earn God's forgiveness as we forgive others. Rather, in the context, in the context of Luke, in the context of the Bible, we recognise the extent to which we've been forgiven and how we mustn't hold back forgiveness from those around us who have equally been offered that same forgiveness. It's pride again, isn't it, that stands in the way of that. That's pause for thought too. The fact that this line made the cut in this just incredible, like the mountaintop place of what to pray. Well, that's the present, the past. Then there's the request for the future, that God wouldn't lead us into temptation. The disciples with Jesus uh, in the lead up to his death and resurrection would experience a time of turmoil, uh, turmoil which we'll no doubt see before Luke ends. And these disciples would be caught up 
in it as Jesus was challenged, imprisoned and finally executed. Jesus foresees the need at that time and as it would come after to ask the Father as he teaches them. And so we benefit as well. For we who come after, still impacted as with, by sin as they were, still in need of perseverance, uh, still needing to ask to be spared temptation that will lead to sin. We are asking God to see us persevere as his people so that we might see him finally and fully at the end. Our needs. Uh, This is what we as disciples need as God is restoring his kingdom. And we know and can feel our daily needs perhaps a little bit more acutely, uh, but we're challenged as well of the equal importance we have, uh, the need of forgiveness and the need for perseverance. We call this the Lord's Prayer, but it's very much about living as a disciple in the kingdom, isn't it? Uh, The kingdom... Uh, uh, like an umbrella arches over it all, it's certainly directed by his loving rule, but maybe we should call it the disciples' prayer. And even though Jesus taught his disciples this prayer on the other side of the cross from us and transformed history through his death and resurrection, we should still pray this prayer uh, in this now but not yet time, should pray, thankful that God has established his kingdom. And we should pray, expecting that each day before it's seen in all its fullness is a day in which we may experience the blessings of living in his kingdom now. Not not least of which is to know him as our father, And we should pray together, as we do when we are together. Pray this together, knowing that it is an us prayer before it is a me prayer. Now, Matthew, uh, I mentioned Matthew, uh, has a version of the Lord's Prayer as well. He records his prayer a bit differently, differently because... I take it it's not a magical set of words, some sort of incantation that somehow forces God's hand. In fact, it was, you know, entirely appropriate that in uh, together time to pray uh, using this as a model prayer. And you can say the words as well, but just don't think it's a a magical prayer. The, The power of this prayer is in the one who is being asked. Anyway, the version we have in uh, Matthew uh, uh, is, is the one that the Lord's Prayer that we use uh, sort of more regularly uh, leans into and, and added to that the way the early church prayed it. Uh, but remember, let me say it again, this is not an incantation that somehow exercises our power over God, but rather humbly comes before the one who is in power so that we might have our hearts shaped by God's help. And so to our prayers.
When Luke records uh, the, what Jesus says next, it's very tightly connected to this prayer. Did you notice that? Uh, it's all about how to ask and the grace of the one who answers. Uh, so we're not going to spend much time on this, but did you pick up Jesus' point in the story of the friend at his neighbour's door at midnight? Now, have you ever tried this trick, uh, knocking on your neighbour's door at midnight? Uh, go away this week. Tell me next Sunday how you went. Uh, let me read from verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, and you can do the voice in your head and the grogginess, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Then Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will get up and give you as much as you need. Now there's, there's two commonly uh, held ways to understand Jesus' final words in that passage in verse 8. Uh, I mean, there's probably other ways people interpret it as well, but two that really line up with what's going on here in Luke uh, with the disciples' prayer. Uh, Jesus can be emphasising, ask, even at the strangest hour, even in what might appear the greatest inconvenience, don't hold back. Don't presume something is too small or too great uh, to not ask. In that sense, it's a parable about our attitude toward God when we pray. Ask even at the strangest hour, even in what might appear the greatest inconvenience, even for what might seem uh, uh, the most extraordinary difficulty or smallest inconvenience, don't hold back in asking your Father in heaven. Or the other way of looking at it, and sometimes you sort of read them and you go, well, it could be one or the other, maybe it's both. Uh, remember, this is an honour and shame culture, okay? That's quite different to what we're used to. The sense of Jesus' words in verse 8 could be because of honour and shame, the man will answer the man at the door uh, because of the way it would bring shame on the guests to not have food and that would bring shame on the one who's asked to provide it in the absence and if they didn't, that would bring shame on the village for not being hospitable. We are meant to see here, uh, not that God is like the man who begrudgingly uh, opens the door, but rather he is far greater, more generous. Imagine how much the God whose name is holy for the sake of his glory and honour will answer your prayers. Then we come to the final section uh, that we read this morning from verse 9. So I ask you, uh, so I say to you, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who uh, asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, fathers, 
if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, even I, as a sinner, you know, and for all the things I get asked by my kids, nothing brings me greater joy than when they ask for something that they're expecting I'm going to say no to, and I can say yes. Anyone here had that experience? It, the look on their faces is great. It's like, that worked? Uh, but because God is dependable and honourable and does what is best for his children, so he will give us what we need. Again, it's his integrity and honour which guides him. It's driven home for us by the way verse 10 repeats verse 9 and then in the way he draws the comparison between fathers in a broken world and our heavenly father. If fathers like me who are evil could give good, uh, give good things to our children, how much more will our father in heaven give but what's he say in the end? It's a bit surprising. He says, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, that caught me a bit off guard. I even sort of drew a circle around it and said, uh, why does he say the Holy Spirit here? He's been talking about food and he's been talking about good things. But when I thought about it, isn't that what God has promised to give us in the age when his kingdom comes? As we heard in Ezekiel 36, his spirit. The spirit that will liberate his people from their hardness of heart, liberate us from sin and rebellion, liberate us from the consequences of sin and judgment. The same spirit we see after Jesus' resurrection, uh, after he's taken up into heaven, given to the first disciples and given to, to us. God gives us himself. And so the Lord's Prayer, hasn't it been a hoot? Uh, looking at the Lord's Prayer more carefully today, this is a prayer to pray regularly, to pray daily. It's a prayer to pray with confidence and expectantly. It's a prayer that God will be seen for who he is, that he'd be seen for all his goodness and glory and grace by all people. And now we have the great privilege of being caught up in it ourselves. And so we are, we're going to be people who continue to pray the Lord's Prayer. But now I understand it a little more deeply. The roots have drilled further down. I'm going to pray it now with a renewed energy. And I hope you will too. Praying that God that what he has started, he will bring to its perfect end. That being the case, why don't we pray together and come to our Heavenly Father and pray the Lord's Prayer. It'll be up on the overhead. Together, 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Amen.